I'm Lee Keough, Editor-in-Chief of NJ Spotlight, and I'd like to welcome you to our conference podcast series. Today's program is from our event, the 2016 NJ Spotlight on Cities, which was held October 14th at the New Jersey Performing Arts Center in Newark. In this session, entitled Gentrification from Urban to Urbane, we take a look at whether gentrification needs to have a negative connotation for many urban dwellers. We invited Braden Crooks of Designing the We, Paul Silverman of Silverman Development, and East Orange Mayor Lester Young to talk about how urban revival can be accomplished without displacing residents. Instead, they say, focusing on developing vacant lots and preserving what's special about what already exists can spur renewal and bring new economic life to underinvested communities. Good morning. So we're going to get started. I'm told that I have uh, now a half an hour, I think, <laughs> to squeeze the conversation about gentrification into 30 minutes. I, I think we can do that. Can we do that? Okay, so my name is Barbara George Johnson. I'm the executive director for the John S. Watson Institute for Public Policy at Thomas Edison State University. And it is my pleasure to have all of you join us this morning for this very important conversation. This is something that I've been excited about talking about for some time. We manage New Jersey Urban Mayors Association at Thomas Edison, so we have the opportunity to talk about these, about these issues probably more than most. So let me just delve right into the topic and it's gentrification from urban to urbane. And that's particularly intentional because um, as you know, whenever someone mentions the term gentrification, it either brings up a defensiveness on one side of the aisle or uh, a bit of anger on the other side. And so the goal this morning is to talk to these gentlemen who bring very uh, different perspectives and unique perspectives on the issue and to find out you know, what people are really thinking about and how we can get maybe to some sort of policy solutions or middle ground. So we're gonna try to do that relatively quickly. Um, the term gentrification comes from Ruth Glass, who was a, um, a British sociologist in 1964. And the reason that the term was coined is because she started to see some altering of the population in the inner cities of London. And she coined that phrase because she said what she noticed was that you had working class communities that were being displaced by wealthier communities. And so the term has come to signify basically poorer communities being displaced by wealth, both wealth in terms of the income levels of the people who come into the community, as well as the investments that are made in those communities. And so we have with us this morning, Braden Crooks, who is from uh, Designing the We, which is a social impact organization that started uh, with a group who graduated from the Parsons School of Design and wanted to use design concepts to look at uh, community development. They are now um, hosted in the um, Social Impact or Social Innovation Center in New York City. So Braden's going to talk to us a little bit about the, the um, historical context of um, revitalization and whether or not revitalization is, should even be considered revitalization when I mean, we think about gentrification. Um, so I'm going to have Brayden go ahead and start. Thank you, Barbara. And I, I, I'll let that introduction uh, suffice for now because we're at running short on time. But So um, one of the things that we focus on um, and one of the reasons why Barbara was so kind to invite me uh, to talk on this panel is we have an exhibit which we call Undesign the Red Line. And we heard a little bit about this earlier uh, this morning, uh, very well articulated, but I want to build out that context because I think something like gentrification is really one manifestation of 
much deeper and much more systemic and, and really entangled uh, uh, policies, practices, and really urban crises that have been going on for a long time. And um, one thing that we think that where there's a pivot point, and it was mentioned actually earlier today, was the New Deal in which um, policies like redlining, and I'm sure many of you uh, are familiar with, but I'll just give a quick overview, uh, where uh, here's an era when the government's getting into essentially all the policies that create the American middle class, that build up wealth in the country, um, but of course it's happening also um, in the height of the Jim Crow era, the Democrats uh, who are in control of Congress, mainly a party of the South, and they bake into these policies ways to cut out people of color. And at this time, that, uh, that's many people, but it's particularly black people, and this happens in Social Security, for example. Uh, the two classes of work cut out of Social Security are domestic labor and agriculture, still cut out of Social Security today. Those, that was because in the South, people of color could work in domestic labor or agriculture. But the way that it gets cut out of home ownership and really the main mechanisms of middle class wealth building in the United States uh, is through policy called redlining. And what this did was it zoned out whole areas where we're either gonna say this is a great area to invest or this is a bad area to invest. And uh, it also was part of the formalization of the national banking system. So um, how did these areas get determined? Well, uh, you know, there was certain factors like, oh, distance to jobs or transportation or the quality of the buildings. Those, those factors really weren't, if you look at across how things got uh, uh, zoned, uh, they, would, they could either be green, which is great, blue, yellow, or red, which is the worst. Um, those weren't really determining factors. They, they were mentioned, but actually race became the predominant factor as to why an area would be redlined. And the language that was used was extremely explicit. So we, uh, we did, at the time, we, we went down to the National Archives uh, to dig up some of these documents, many of which have been classified for decades and uh, or uh, just largely undiscovered. And you have the smoking gun uh, of these policies in uh, these underwriting manuals and the uh, area descriptions. And the area descriptions tell you, well, why was this area redlined? And it will say hazardous infiltration colon Negroes. It was referred to as detrimental influences or hazardous infiltration. This very nasty language. And at this point in time, it's particularly black people, but it was also Hispanic people, Asian people, uh, even Jewish people, uh, Italians, uh, Irish people, uh, were classified as hazardous infiltrators. And because of this, this area was high risk and then cut off for investment. Well, what do you see happen after this? So you get a whole process of disinvestment, not only in terms of access to services, but also in tech access to the ability to build wealth, the ability to start a business, the ability to have home ownership. Um, all these things that allow people not just to uh, have well-being, but also to contribute to society, to be valuable, to, to generate wealth. And now that leads into today when uh, you have uh, wealth and investment pouring back into areas that are historically redlined as we're talking about with gentrification, but none of that investment really reaches the people who have been historically redlined. And one of the things that we like to say is that the tide starts to rise, but instead of rising everyone's boats, it sort of washes people away. And uh, that's because of these very deep historic processes that have been going on.
So Paul, Paul Silverman, to my far left, is a developer. Paul is the president of Silverman, which is a development uh, corporation and has developed um, places like in Jersey City. You've done historical restorations. You've done um, mixed-use development. Given the historical context that Braden just uh, laid out, why shouldn't urban communities in particular see developers at best in you know, sort of a skeptical way when they're coming into those communities, looking in at their land, prospecting, and, and looking at site locations, et cetera? Well, thank you, Barbara. And in Jersey City, we're really blessed with some beautiful old buildings and beautiful old neighborhoods that have been neglected for many years. And gentrification is an issue because you, you are raising values all around people that can't afford to live there anymore. So my brother Eric and I, and I'm not president, I'm a partner with my brother Eric, just to clarify that. To those of you that know my brother, I don't want you to report that I was president. But so Eric and I have been, uh, since 1981, taking empty sites. And we don't take buildings that have people in them. We don't kick out senior citizens, not kicking out poor people. We're taking old hospital buildings, an old theater complex, an old uh, uh, brass foundry, a luggage factory, a school, church, so buildings that are empty and filling them with beautiful retail and with apartments and condominiums and schools. But then to help combat and address the gentrification, we're also huge supporters of education in Jersey City. Through our office, I run a principal for a day program in Jersey City where it's now four years running. Every public school in Jersey City gets a, a day with a business leader in Jersey City, a business or community leader working side by side to help improve the schools, help improve the relationship between the, the business community and the schools so that we can get better schools and improve that education. And then I also support uh, an amazing after-school program called New City Kids, where they're taking kids and they're really brainwashing them. And kind of what the mayor was talking about before, they're brainwashing these kids to give them high expectations, where second grade, they're coming to this program, and they know they're going to college already, where their parents and their sisters and brothers, none of them ever went to college. So, so supporting the community that way is probably the, the most important thing we can do as developers. And, and you know, my brother and I are small developers in Jersey City, but we really speak loudly to others and try to encourage that same thing, to, to help do the rising tide and so they don't get washed away. Thank you. We have uh, Mayor Lester Taylor with us, who is the mayor of East Orange. And um, I always said this, this topic of conversation came about because I always hear him talking about urbanity and urbanism and the changes in, in the language that we use to describe urban communities where when they were urban with high employment right, and um, low education, it was urban with a negative connotation, but now we, as we look at people moving back to urban communities, it's now urbane. So I want Mayor uh, Taylor to address, um, sort of piggybacking on Paul, is it a criteria when you're looking at developers coming into East Orange that they are investing in the city? And you have such a, an interesting position because you, I know that you're trying to um, market East Orange as an urban center of excellence and a destination city. So how do you do that while reconciling the concerns that community um, activists might have about folks coming in? Well, th thank you, Barbara, and good morning, everyone. Um, I first have one, I guess, point of order I have to point out. Um, I have two young children, um, five and seven years old, and they generally think I'm pretty cool. Um, this morning, I told them I was going to speak on a panel in Newark, New Jersey, about gentrification. Um, they had no idea what that meant. Um, and then I said, one of my co-panelists designed the way. And they immediately thought I was great and very cool. 
Um, I thought the actual Nintendo Wii, uh, not designing the Wii. <laughs> so so I, I thought I'd come home with new games and everything for them. <laughs> um, Sorry about that. But <laughs> in East Orange, um, you know, we have grappled uh, with the term urban. Uh, when I took office, I inherited a, a municipality of 65,000 residents um, that is 85% African-American in population, a very large concentration of individuals from the continent of Africa, from the Caribbean, uh, et cetera. Um, we have about 85% of our school-aged children who qualify for free, free and reduced-price lunch. Um, so socioeconomically, we have a lot of the challenges that every other urban community across the country has. Um, on the flip side, we have a suburban-like setting in many areas of our city, single-family homes, large lots, um, where you need a car in East Orange, some places you can't walk. Um, so we have the best of both worlds in that context. What we did was we started with a vision. The vision is that East Orange will set the standard for urban excellence and become a destination city. Uh, we probably spent two months uh, deciding whether to use the word urban in that vision. Because if you read many newspapers, you watch TV news, uh, a lot of the stories you hear about urban centers are negative. Whether it's about crime, whether it's about blight, whether it's about unemployment, uh, whether it's about other issues that might detract from bringing investment and bringing families to the community. Um, but then we thought about urban being the new buzzword. Um, when I did my research about redevelopment across not just the country, but the globe, and you see people moving back to our urban areas. Um, you see people being priced out of Brooklyn, New York. You see people being priced out of Jersey City, quite frankly. Um, but also, there was an article this Sunday in the Star-Ledger about people moving from the McMansions, and people can't even sell those anymore because they're just not the end thing. Um, and so we wanted to embrace that term urban uh, in our city, um, and couple it with some of the back-to-basics concepts that we had to show that we are operating and governing our city like the $140 million corporation that it is, so that we can create business partners with our developers versus asking them for you know, the proverbial handout, um, what it is you can do thinking that all developers are rich, because they're not. Um, they're looking to earn a reasonable dollar on their investment, and we have to show them why East Orange is as good, if not better, of an investment than our neighboring communities, um, no offense to them, uh, and or any place else, else in the state of New Jersey. Um, we're very happy about our efforts thus far. Um, we have turned a $10 million budget deficit into a $10 million fund balance. Um, or, or surplus in just two years. Uh, we've taken a water utility that was mired in controversy uh, with two individuals under indictment when I took office. One in jail, one died before he went to jail. Um, Four million dollars in debt. Turned that around to be a revenue generating asset in our city that's not only producing safe quality drinking water, but also creating jobs and creating a stimulus for our economy that shows the business community that East Orange is serious and that their investment will be efficient and also will be a good return on that investment for our community first and foremost, but also to attract quality developers throughout our city. So let's, let's stay on the economy and let's talk about the economic impact of gentrification. Why, Britain, wouldn't that be a good thing? Why wouldn't it be good to have people who um, are higher income moving into a community and attracting the kinds of businesses that a mayor would want to see come into their town? Well, you know, um, let me, let me give, say two things about this. One is that, uh, the conversation um, about jobs and education, this kind of thing is very important. However, it's really not a complete conversation. The conversation also needs to include aspects of wealth, which is different from income. So if you look at, for example, the effects of things like redlining historically, if you take 
black families and white families and compare at the same levels of income, they still have half the level of wealth. That's because wealth is a multi-generational process, it's a community-based process, and we've had policies and practices and events that have stolen wealth out of cities and devalued. So how do you connect that value together? And that's something that I think that takes a lot of creativity and innovation. It has to do with ownership as much as it does access to jobs uh, and income. So um, I, I want to give an example of this and, and to just to sort of spur the imagination. Um, I live in Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn. And uh, there's this great record shop, although one that is uh, uh, kind of very old and on the downswing, right? So you go in there, there's some old guys, they're old school bed guys, and they, it's mostly CDs, which but nobody buys, so they're covered in dust. And, uh, and you know, you know that this is, this, here's a small business, it's locally owned, but it's going to be displaced because uh, rents are rising and you just know, there's, there's no way that this place can uh, survive this wave that's coming through. And, um, but it's still, you wonder, how can we look at this as an asset in the community to build upon? And so we started talking about this and we realized, you know what, actually, these guys know everything there is to know about Bed-Stuy music. You ask this guy, he's like, oh, by the way, in 1963, this guy was touring around and he was really great and he never made it big, but I've got three records that he made. It's super valuable. And then, you know, we got some young people together and we we're talking about how, uh, how they start to influence and recreate this space as a space for music and culture of this community. How does they become a membership model where people join up and then they get songs every week that are harkening back to what was playing at that time uh, in the summer of 1972 in Bed-Stuy. Um, and then start to really reimagine how this local business becomes a real value asset. And you're plugging in people who are moving into the neighborhood, uh, who, are, who are spending their money there, who are really interested in becoming, learning about the neighborhood. You're saving this culture that's otherwise getting totally wiped away, but it's so rich, it's so valuable. And these guys that, uh, they might not know what an app is, but we've got high schoolers who know what an app is, and they can code it, and they can work with them, learning, doing on-the-job training, getting an ownership stake, and now you have a wealth-building project where you have ownership in a business. Let's say it's a cooperative. We're really excited about things like cooperative models that spread ownership of these types of projects around. And so the question becomes how that's a lot of work, that's a lot of process, because it's bringing people together, it's bringing innovation into the space, economic innovation, um, looking at the future of work, not just where jobs are at now, but where they're going. Um, uh, and we, we need to think in very innovatively about how we do that. So I see folks coming in, which, uh, do I have time? Okay. <laughs> so let's continue that conversation then about place base and culture. Because one of the, the, the big uh, concerns about gentrification is that it not only displaces people, but it displaces culture. And there really isn't respect for, let's say, um, the architectural uh, integrity of places that attach to history and the culture of those places. So Mayor Taylor. Um, first, I'm too young to know what a record is. Um, <laughs> but I do know that um, the most recent Nobel laureate, uh, Bob Dylan, uh, had a song um, that said he's leaving New York and coming to East Orange. Um, so you can all Google that right now. You'll find that. <laughs> Perfect. 
Um, but, you know, what's interesting to note about East Orange, um, and I talked a little bit about a hit the history of it, 25 years ago, we had 80,000 people in our city, 80, 85,000 people. Um, once, you know, after the riots, after 280 was built, the population declined for a lot of other reasons as well. So today we have 65,000 people. Um, and so, Barbara, when you opened up um, with the definition of gentrification, uh, traditionally being equated with displacement of people, uh, East Orange has a different model. Um, our model is we have room to grow, and we're attracting new people to our community. Um, we're attracting people who grew up in our community and left because they might not have had a reason to come back. But now we're showing them why it's important um, and viable for them to come back to East Orange to add to um, our community. Um, most, if not all, of our construction and development in our city is happening on vacant lots and or abandoned structures and buildings. Um, and so our model, while we are not gentrifying the city, um, I use the term diversifying the incomes in our city um, to be able to then attract other types of commodities and, and stores and goods and services that everybody wants. Um, everybody wants a Starbucks, so we have to make sure there's an environment and an economic base in the city that supports their model for their client base, their customer base. Um, and so at East Orange, I think, is now, but more importantly will be, uh, a model for a best practice of similarly sized cities or similarly situated cities across the country of how we can attract responsible developers to our community to add to the culture, not forgetting the rich history, both architecturally and the human capital in the city, um, and add to an area where folks can not only have you know, great places to live, but also to work and to play. And what I'll also add is that in East Orange, we're doing other things so that the existing residents can also participate in this, in this surge, in this wave. Um, East Orange is the first city in the entire United States of America to collectively bargain a $15 an hour wage for our CWA union members in the city of East Orange. Clap louder, come on. Uh, um, so we're not just asking the private developers and businesses to open their pocketbooks. You know, we're leading by example, but we're also demanding of our employees and showing our constituents that we're getting more productivity, we're getting more loyalty, we're getting more out of the eight hours in that day, which is thereby creating a cleaner community, a safer community, and one where there is an ability to, quite frankly, make a dollar and make an investment in East Orange. So there's a lot to unpack in what you just said. So let me think about that for a minute. Um, in terms, uh, so I guess I can't not talk about housing as we talk about um, gentrification and affordable housing in particular. And let's not confuse affordable housing with low-income housing because affordable housing means that, you know, you come out of, out of college and you got the first job and you can't afford to rent in New Jersey, or you can't afford to, after you have a family, purchase a home in New Jersey. So, you know, affordable housing means a lot of things uh, now outside of low income. But Paul, in particular, when we talk about development, what are developers doing to look at retaining those individuals that are residents and have been residents in these places when they were neglected and, and there was disinvestment? And how can they encourage those individuals to stay through maybe housing policies or what you're thinking about when you're developing um, housing units? That's a good question. In Jersey City, uh, developers have an option of either building affordable housing or contributing to the affordable housing trust fund within the city. And we've chosen for the last probably 10 years to contribute to the uh, affordable housing trust fund in Jersey City. So that we're, we're trying to help the city build up this, this war chest of, of money to be able to build some affordable housing. And they're, they're accomplishing that you know, in a small way. Uh, we'd like it to be bigger. But the other thing we're doing is we're, we're trying to 
help the people that are living there now to maintain their investment. If they if they own a home, we're trying to improve the values of the, the neighborhood, and 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 do that rising tide. You know, I see my friend Alpha over there from Rising Tide Capital in Jersey City. We've used your name several times. Good plugs for you. So, <laughs> Rising Tide teaches uh, people how to be successful entrepreneurs in a great program. In is it also East Orange, West? Yeah, so in Orange, Wrong answer. Jersey City. But uh, we'll, 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 we'll invite you to come. Yeah, that'll be your next city, a great city. But so, so we work hard to, to keep the investments up. And then to, to talk for a moment about the uh, neighborhoods, you know, our retail stores, uh, Charles Company, the building we just completed this past year, six retail stores, four of them are expansions of retailers that were in the neighborhood already. So we took people that were already uh, local celebrities. Each of them had their own dramatic stories. Uh, Warren and Mika with Another Man's Treasure, an amazing vintage clothing store in uh, downtown Jersey City. We moved them, uh, you know, six blocks away into our building and quadrupled their space and uh, they're famous for outfitting Billy Joel's daughter for the, all the awards programs. So, and uh, they have a lot of celebrities too that they, they outfit as well. And then uh, Kim Jeblak is the trainer, physical fitness trainer. My brother and I have been using for 10 years. Had a little tiny fitness studio. We built a gym with three rooms for her. And so she brought her clientele with her. So we really work hard to embrace people already in the neighborhoods, help them raise their values up, uh, whether they, they rent or own. If they're renting, you know, it's, we give them a nicer place to live and to walk around and to, to shop and, and uh, we try not to rent to the Starbucks or the Genevieve's Drugs or the CVS's and, and try to get all the local retailers to really make it an interesting neighborhood to walk around. Barbara, may I just add one point? Sure. Um, you know, what's interesting, when I first assumed office as mayor two and a half years ago, um, I had developers literally, you know, beating down the door offering to build affordable housing in East Orange, um, telling us how we need affordable housing uh, in East Orange. Um, and I had to grapple with those those offers, those invitations, um, because we were at the same time coming up with the concept of urban excellence and what urban meant. Urban not just being black and brown, urban not just being poor. Um, looking at our, demo, our uh, economics in East Orange, over 40% of our property is non-taxable. School, government, nonprofit, et cetera. Um, how do you sustain a business, a community, if you have such a high proportion of non-taxable property? When you look at most other urban com communities across the country, the average is about 25%, suburban about 10 or 15%. Um, coupled with that, the already high percentage um, and concentration of low to moderate income individuals, nothing wrong with being black and brown, look at me, um, nothing wrong with um, coming from humble beginnings. Um, but in trying to stabilize and build an economy, um, what I found myself saying to those developers is, guess what? I just learned that urban doesn't mean the black communities. Urban means transportation. So how about knock on South Orange's door? How about knock on West Orange's door um, to help diversify those incomes so I can get some other businesses and investment in East Orange? And I think that also has to be part of the honest dialogue and conversation that if we're going to rebuild urban areas, it can't just be uh, putting all high concentrations in one area at the exclusion of others um, because what then ends up happening is resources don't become available for cities like East Orange to take advantage of the Economic Opportunity Act, um, to take advantage of other incentives that will help us attract developers to build opportunities for everyone. 
Uh, thank you, Mayor. So there, there are two things that um, I want to draw attention to. Um, one is how do we start to think very differently about affordable again and diversifying those affordable spaces. So I know that there are some opportunities in other parts of the country that where they're looking at mixed income uh, development so that you have people of a lower income living in units with people of higher income and sharing those communal spaces. And also, how do we start to have the other voices that we don't hear a lot, the community activists, the, the block association folks, people who are complaining that they're being displaced and, and other types of people are moving in to their communities and bringing maybe a different kind of business interest into their community. And Brayden, I'll have you start. And I would like to um, throw it out to the audience for questions. I don't know if we can do that. Okay. So we can get a couple of questions after this. So I'm really glad you asked that because actually when I, when I leave here, I'm going to straight to have a conversation with HPD in New York about this very question, which is, um, you know, there, we're entering actually a crisis right now where uh, things like supportive housing, uh, shelters, uh, even affordable housing are, are um, being cited and there's all this community-based opposition to their placement in, in their neighborhoods. And um, this is because we've, we've kind of gone down a funnel of a particular narrative about what these are and who is who they're for um, that is really detrimental. And I think that it, uh, we're, uh, we're getting at here, um, actually. Uh, where, wherein uh, we're not talking about how are people going to be valuable again? How are they going to be contributing? How they, they're full of energy and excitement and, you know, rising tide capital, right? So, so you're uh, talking about entrepreneurialism and, and, and really making those connections and shared spaces is super important. How do we look at these, uh, how do we look at these things like affordable housing, not as just kind of a handout, um, not as just um, a burden, a tax burden, whatever, but as an opportunity to plug a neighbor to neighborhood together, to start to stitch things together, to start to have activities and people um, where shared value is coming out of that. Um, so I think that we really need to shift that narrative. Thank you. I'm going to ask for the questions from the audience. We have like maybe three more minutes. So I'm not sure who's going to take this question, so I'll throw it out there. Um, what is the current thinking of using eminent domain to prevent foreclosure? To prevent foreclosure? To prevent fo that's what they said. I don't know who asked this I question. I've never heard it used in okay. context. You might you want to clarify well, for us? It was probably Irvington, I think it was. It was Irvington, yeah. Um, thanks for the clarification. I, I have heard of it. Um, in East Orange, we are working with organizations such as New Jersey Communities uh, United 
um, and others to try to help um, you know, educate and prevent, educate uh, homeowners and or prospective homeowners, uh, try to negotiate and work with banks. Um, our city council was very progressive and passed an ordinance about a year ago uh, requiring or, or encouraging is probably a better word, uh, banks to work with the municipality um, and other stakeholders to prevent foreclosures. Um, I have neighbors who have been foreclosed upon, so it's an issue that I am um, dealing with. Um, but my understanding of that issue is that municipalities can't and, and otherwise shouldn't become landlords. Um, and so in that regard, eminent domain is typically um, used to redevelop for the public good to bring in either uh, uh, transportation and or other business or, or development that's going to add to the tax base and the environment, not to be, essentially become a landlord. That's the way I understand that issue to be. So one of the uh, questions also has to do with policy. And if we think uh, legislative policy or some sort of statewide change in policy is needed as we look at housing um, concerns for those folks who think they're going to be displaced, or as we look at uh, small businesses possibly needing support so they don't have to move out of a community because of higher rents, um, what is your thoughts on state policy or legislative, you know, just changing, whether it's ordinances locally or legislative policy at the state level? I'd like to say something on that. I think it's really important for it to be local and not state. I think uh, almost neighborhood by neighborhood. Uh, I see that Jersey City, as large as it is, you know, there's, there's so many different factors in each neighborhood. And it really has to be a, a council person's uh, ward to, to make those local decisions. So I think uh, if we do it statewide, it's going to be tough to have the same uh, rules in uh, Montclair and Princeton and Jersey City and East Orange uh, statewide. So I think it really should be very local. And I think just just building on that comment, um, you know, I think communities need more outlets than just to oppose projects. And that, I think that that's one thing that's become um, such a uh, unfortunate issue in many communities is that basically they they something comes along, they hear about it at kind of at the last minute, and then they can they can either kind of try and fight it, and that's about all they feel they can do. So I really think that when it comes to this type of community planning, how do we get communities really engaged and folks really engaged all the time in planning their community, in, in plugging into these types of projects, in being proactive and saying, how, what can we do with this abandoned building and how can we start to design and work on what goes in there and then partner with the right folks who can come in and help us achieve that vision. Um, you know, I've talked to so many people who are uh, in neighborhood associations, in community organizations who are exhausted by having to fight the next thing and fight the next thing because it's not uh, something they feel they're going to benefit from. There needs to be a really proactive process for saying, well, actually, we can help be creative in creating our community. We can, we can start to build these bridges that not just bring new energy in, but re reinvigorate and, and, and create the outlets for all the energy that's already here. So we do that uh, already, and I think we, we are a model for other developers, many that, that don't do that, and that just show up and say, this is what we're building, and, and then they have their protest. So my brother and I are, are really working hard to engage the neighborhood before we put the first shovel into the ground. And uh, Charles Company building that we completed last year, almost nine years in the making, uh, it, it fronts right by City Hall, seven-story building, perfectly appropriate. Seven stories on York Street behind it didn't make sense because there's brownstones here that are three stories high. But we didn't really think about that. I don't walk down York Street that often. But the residents there at several of our community meetings said, I can live in my little three-story brownstone. Look at your seven-story building. So what we did, we listened to that, and we set it back so that it looks like it's three stories from there. 
we have some patios here, and then it goes up to seven stories, and they don't see that. They also talked about our driveway being there on, the, the, on their street. So that didn't make sense. We moved to the other side. So we really do try to listen, and, and we encourage other developers to do that too. Before you start building, before you start engaging that, that architect and engineer, listen to the neighborhood and, and, and what does the neighborhood want. So, so we really work hard to do that. And what I also say, I often say East Orange is, is large enough to be relevant. Um, thank you for having me here today. Um, but also small enough to be manageable um, in many respects. Um, you know, we're four square miles. Um, you know, we don't need to build the, a skyscraper to make a ripple in the pond, so to speak. If we can get, you know, a four-story building built, that will change the trajectory of that neighborhood and essentially the whole city for a generation to come. Um, in our conversations with developers, um, we have impressed upon them how well managed and run the city is, and they have agreed without policy, without ordinance, without requirement uh, to create a workforce housing and, and price points that is attractive for uh, the new teacher, for the municipal DPW worker to be part of the fabric of that new development that is otherwise market rate, but also has a point that is affordable for the community. Um, we're also partnering with our housing authority. Uh, the Department of Housing and Urban Development um, is, is pushing and forcing self-sufficiency on housing authorities. Um, we are partnering to empower our housing authority uh, to be a developer and redeveloper uh, in our community. Um, within the first six months of my administration, I settled litigation between the city and housing authority that had festered for 10 years. Um, and part of that settlement was to do a land swap, um, to give the housing authority a parcel of property, uh, to partner with them to redevelop that, to build affordable price housing you know, in our community, but affordable price housing that quite frankly resembles and competes with the market rate products um, that are out there. And I can point to housing authorities all across the state, uh, the Long Branch Housing Authority being one. We look at the oceanfront in Long Branch, you see million dollar condos. If you look at the $150 million tax credit development they've done, those pr products, not projects, those products mirror, quite frankly, what you see in the oceanfront. And that's something we're trying to do in East Orange. So thank you. One of the other questions that I have has to do with um, building wealth. And tied to that question is one about public banking. And so I think the two are, are tied. And I know that there are um, opportunities where they're cooperative or um, sometimes workers share small business opportunities, whether it's a parking authority or something else. And there are cooperatives around the country where people are looking at how, uh, if you're a renter, how do you become a part of a co-op as opposed to just a renter? And so helping to build wealth in that way. Um, anyone, talk about that. Yeah, you know, this is something that I think uh, is really coming in it's, uh, and really rising in terms of it, what people are paying attention to these days. And um, it's very important. You know, I think it's not just follow the money, it's follow the ownership. And, um, you know, shared ownership models, and there are very many, there's cooperatives, but, and then really thinking, being innovative and thinking about hybrid models, um, how do people get a stake in the community that they're in um, that allows them uh, to build wealth in a business or in a, in a home uh, or, or in the community as a whole. Um, and so, you know, you mentioned public banking, there's um, all sorts of new and innovative finance um, uh, mechanisms, which I think are extremely important, especially if you look at the history of redlining, which is about cutting off investment. It's not, and, and cutting off investment to particular people. It's not just about services um, or jobs. And um, 
And uh, one way that that can happen, you know, there's a great model that I was looking at in Oakland, California, where folks pooled, sold shares within the community around a community grocery store. Instead of saying, uh, we're in a food desert, let's get a corporate grocery chain to come in and the city will subsidize that with millions of bucks and uh, we'll get a few minimum wage jobs out of it and we'll get a grocery store. They started um, their own grocery store um, that the community now owns. And so the profits are circulating locally and uh, because people are the owners, they want to shop there, they want their friends and family to shop there. So it's a robust business. And it's one where all sorts of other activities are now taking place. Community programs, community kitchen, etc. So um, these models are out there and um, they're gaining in popularity. We need to invest in the process to get to those models because it can't just be volunteers going out and hustling and going door to door. We need to have the resources there where we can make that into a sustained practice of community building that everybody can get involved in. Um, and then when new people come in, they can plug in to those models and those resources. And they're not just plugging into Starbucks, they're plugging directly into the community. And, um, and that's what the, the healing that our society needs. I mean, we talk about things like redlining. We're deep, deep scars. I mean, we see it every day. We see it on the news. People are so segregated, so divided. Um, they don't know each other. They need the spaces to plug in and to get to know each other not, and build wealth there and, and, and build livelihoods. So we're uh, running out of time. <clears throat> I'm going to give the last comment to uh, Mayor Taylor. And so the last panel talked about the urban agenda and uh, the gubernatorial candidacy and how we position urban communities. And given the topic that we've discussed this morning, how do we begin to discuss this issue with our new governor and how do we get the right investments so that we can have some of the models that we're talking about come to New Jersey in our urban centers? Thank you for such an easy question. <laughs> <laughs> Um, what I will say is um, I, I think it's important for um, the new governor. I was on a panel discussion a week or two ago at Montclair State University, um, and one of the state legislators um, were talking about whether municipalities, cities should, uh, and the state by that um, factor, should uh, give tax credits um, and pilots to developers and whether that was good or bad policy. Um, and the answer, of course, was on both sides of the coin. Um, but in one of the answers from actually two legislators, the examples they gave were about the urban communities in the state, um, and we don't want to invest all the money in the urban communities, and they used Patterson, Newark, and Trenton. Um, and what I said was there is about two dozen other urban communities in the state, um, if not more, than just the large urban centers. And what I find as a mayor of a small city nationally, you know, mid-size in New Jersey, is that a lot of the funding, a lot of the programs gets concentrated in the large urban centers and there's nothing left for me um, and nothing left for my community. Um, and so I think that we have to change the mindset um, to recognize that you know, development can also be triggered um, and best practices can be identified um, and modeled on a smaller scale first um, and then scaled up in larger areas um, and quite frankly with probably less investment um, or, or a lesser investment being spread around having a greater impact. Um, so I think that would be important to impress upon the next governor. So thank you. I want to thank our panelists for joining us this morning.
Thank you for joining us. For more information on NJ Spotlight or to offer comments, please go to njspotlight.com. To learn specifically about this conference, visit njspotlightoncities.com. Production services were provided by Professional Podcasts, which can be found at beingthemedia.com. For everyone here at NJ Spotlight, this is Lee Keo. Thanks for listening.